Welcome to The View from Apollo, a podcast where we discuss current macroeconomic trends and break down how they'll impact our investors. I'm your host, Torsten Slock. I'm Chief Economist here at Apollo Global Management. Each episode, I'll be joined by leaders from across our business who will share their unique perspective on the market factors that are shaping sectors and investment strategies. You can catch new episodes by subscribing to The View from Apollo on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or by visiting our homepage, apollo.com. Thanks for tuning in. Hi, everyone. Welcome to today's episode of The View from Apollo. My name is Torsten Slock, and I'm the chief economist here. On today's episode, we're going to be discussing the state of real estate, specifically how inflationary pressures are affecting the sector. And we'll also be talking about the Chinese real estate, real estate more broadly in the world and where things are heading. I'm joined today by Philip Mintz, who is one of the three partners who oversee real estate investments here. We have a lot of ground to cover, Philip, so let's jump right into it. Thanks so much for joining me. But why don't you start out by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself before we get going? Sure. Thank you. Uh, my name is Philip Mintz. I joined Apollo six and a half years ago. I spent 11 years living in Asia. I oversee our real estate equity investing in the United States uh, and in Asia more broadly in the United States, opportunistic and net lease. In Asia, it's predominantly opportunistic with some credit solution style investing and, and look forward to talking to you today, Torsen. So before we start about talking about inflation and China and, and, and some of the topics that uh, are on many people's minds at the moment, let's uh, first try to talk about, well, what does real estate mean? What areas does it cover? Uh, and how do you choose what investments uh, you want to look at, whether it's residential, office, apartments, malls? How do you think about real estate more broadly? And, and, uh, and what is the definition in your mind of the asset class? Sure. I think real estate, as it is viewed from the lens of Apollo, is meant to do a few things. One, utilize the underlying real estate around the globe to generate good risk-adjusted returns. I think as Torsten and I will talk about a little bit, its impact as an inflation hedge more broadly. So both on a notional and relative basis, you know, real estate is types of assets that people live in, work in, utilize for travel, for leisure, for hospitality. You know, broadly speaking, historically, it would be viewed as sort of four major food groups, retail, office, industrial, residential. I think to date that's broadened out considerably Things such as life sciences, manufactured housing, self-storage, typically the types of things we do might have three to seven-year horizons, um, both domestically and internationally. And in what ways has real estate been impacted by COVID? I mean, we spent a lot of time in the macro space discussing supply chain constraints and how wages are going up in construction and how hard it is to source materials when you want to build something globally. It's not only in the U.S., but everywhere. It's interesting. COVID has had intended and what I would characterize as unintended consequences. Now, first, I think you have to think geographically. So COVID in the United States has amplified or accelerated certain demographic trends that were happening prior to coronavirus, such as the, the movement of the population to states that have cost of living and quality of living comparative advantage. So you would think about the Sun Belt. Uh, so where the primacy of the, the sort of city-state in the United States historically with cities like New York, Los Angeles, D.C., Boston, Chicago, San Francisco, 
you know, to a large extent, that's moderating as a result of the effects of coronavirus. I think in the United States, the second derivative of coronavirus has been the impact on labor and, and prices. So if you think about something like senior housing, you know, to get employees, restaurants, lodging, much, much more difficult, much, much more costly. So margin compression is happening at the same time when you have certain demand challenges, uh, which in many cases has been you know, really unforeseen. When you compare international versus the United States, let's take Asia. You know, Asia has not had the same implications of coronavirus. Corporate earnings have rebounded faster. GDP growth has rebounded faster. And I think more micro, just the utilization of real estate has rebounded faster. For example, we have an interest in a hotel in Shanghai that's operating at 85, 90% you know, occupancy right now, which is really extraordinarily high for the type of hotel. This is not a select service. This is a full-service hotel. The corresponding types of hotels in the United States might be operating at 50 or sub-50%. So coronavirus had a much less impact on the sort of changing patterns of human behavior, particularly demographically. The, the flight into cities was happening prior to coronavirus, and to a large extent, it's accelerated with coronavirus, which is almost the opposite of what's happened here in the States. At the moment, there's a lot of attention in financial markets to Chinese property developers and, and the Chinese property sector and real estate sector more broadly. How do you think about uh, some of these headlines that we are seeing on our screens at the moment in the newspapers? One of the theories with which I've invested in Asia for the last 20 years is, I'd call it the dominance of ethnocentricity. And by ethnocentricity, I mean that people in a particular geography tend to have a bias inherent in that and think their geography is superior to all others. And, and I think to a large extent, Asian real estate investing has suffered from that. And people have historically looked at Asia as really one of two types of investing themes. One would be growth. The other would be deep distress, non-performing loans. And and very few people looked in the middle. You know, we three years ago did a study on all the Chinese real estate developers, including uh, those that had international exposure through offshore dollar-denominated bonds, which these types of companies had been issuing with great regularity and, and frankly, very, very efficiently in terms of their pricing. You know, we would make an argument that they were mispriced, um, both in and of themselves, but particularly when you take into account the structural subordination that those offshore dollar-denominated bonds had vis-a-vis -vis onshore, meaning onshore in China, lending. When you look at China, there are some of its competitors that have 90 to $100 billion a year of annual sales. So it is a massive number in a vacuum, but when you think about it against the broader Chinese economy and the means with which the government can regulate its own economy, and I would sur surmise that they can regulate it in ways with which most Western or North American democratic countries cannot. I, I don't think that there's going to be a systemic risk of failure. I don't think that there's going to be a global roiling of the markets. I think right now what's being witnessed is a somewhat expected overreaction Folks like us look at this as a point in time where you can find very, very mispriced idiosyncratic transactions, try to capitalize on that, of course, prudently. But I, I really think that 
the reaction right now is a necessary reaction, albeit somewhat of an overreaction. When you look at different opportunities in real estate in Asia, in different countries that have, in some cases, quite different political systems, quite different e economies, how do you, um, which countries do you like at the moment? And how do you, how do you pick and choose between the many different things that, that, that you look at uh, in, your, in your daily flow? Our answer is somewhat complicated to most you know, listeners or institutional investors in that we love structure. We like being agnostic as to where we are in the capital stack in Asia in particular. And so when we talk about the things that we like to do, a lot of investors get very, very concerned about enforcement. So if I mention India, for example, and some of the types of transactions we do there, the initial reaction many investors will have is terrible experience, the currency can be a disaster, and how are you going to enforce it? There's a challenge. All of which are very, very valid points, and I'll take them sort of one at a time. One, hedging is very efficient. If you use a forward, it's about 500 basis points. If you use a butterfly or some other exotic call option strategy, it's about 300 basis points. It's something that you can quantify and protect. As it relates to enforcement, there's been a lot of amendments to the laws and regulations in the country, a new bankruptcy law. I would argue that enforcement has gotten materially better. Is it as good as it is in Western Europe or the United States? I would say that it's not. But what do we do to protect against that risk of enforcement? First, we tend to sit higher up in the capital structure. So the deepest we've been on a credit solutions transaction is about 63% loan to value. You have to understand 63% loan to value to generate 22% rupee rates of return on a notional and on a relative basis is extraordinarily high. The other thing you do to protect yourself is to transact with partners and counterparties that you know very, very well and for an extended period of time. So reputation and name and relationships really matters. I would argue they matter much more in these markets than they would in Western Europe or the United States. Okay, so let's uh, return to Western Europe and uh, the US and uh, the inflation issue. I'd like to approach it from um, uh, two different angles. First, talking about uh, what does inflation mean in terms of cost inflation and price inflation? And then second, we can talk about what does inflation mean for real estate as an asset class? First and foremost, everywhere in the world, and in particular in the United States, we really try to think about affordability. Because one of the things that is a, a natural barrier to the ability uh, to continue to raise prices is obviously people's ability to pay, whether they're paying for a condominium, whether they're paying monthly expenses, whether it's a manufactured housing asset, a workforce housing asset, single family for rent, et cetera. And what we have historically tried to do is stay very, very well within the affordability spectrum. So much of what we do in residential is frankly manufactured housing. And when you look at manufactured housing, it's very interesting. On average, across our portfolio, the annual cost, uh, I should say the monthly cost for a typical tenant of ours is roughly about $850 a month uh, for 1,000 square feet, which is extremely favorable versus multifamily real estate or single family for rent. Roughly a 30 to 40% discount, depending upon uh, the MSA or the location of the particular asset. It's not a perfect science, but that affordability buffer gives you great comfort. 
Now, I think in real estate, what's interesting is everyone talks about it broadly as an inflation hedge because presumptively rents will grow with inflation. What we try to do is find parts of the real estate economy that have very significant supply demand imbalance or otherwise have significant tailwinds. So for example, we have had a thesis in refrigerator warehouse for the last five years. Uh, we've probably done 23 projects right now, uh, well over 10 million square feet across the country. And the thesis was very simple, that food consumption was not really directly correlated to GDP, it was more correlated to population growth, which had been compounding somewhere between one and a half and 2% per annum. We also realized very early on that extraordinarily expensive to build ground up freezer cooler, and there was essentially no supply. And so that was a niche that we thought was enduring and would have stronger residual cap rates independent of what happened more broadly in the market. Another example of that type of thesis, I think right now would be life sciences. You know, life sciences, i.e. lab space or manufactured uh, manufacturing facilities, there is a significant, significant supply demand imbalance, particularly in the six major markets in the United States uh, where these are, uh, you know, proliferate. Almost independent of what happens from an inflationary standpoint, one could make the argument that the underlying tenants are going to do phenomenally well and on a relative basis versus what I would characterize as more traditional, less supply constrained type of assets, capitalization rates should hold certainly relatively on a more strong basis, but even notionally uh, should hold because of the supply and demand of capital for this particular space. So again, two asset classes that historically would be considered very niche would not have been considered to your first question at the start uh, of the podcast. You know, your traditional real estate asset classes are very quickly becoming what I would call core real estate. The last asset class that I talked about a little bit would be manufactured housing. Again, an asset class that has, I think, been broadly misunderstood. Supply demand is in imbalance, meaning there's very, very little supply. Historically, there were about 9.2 million manufactured housing units in the United States. That number was actually shrinking as assets that had a higher and better use in economic terms were taken out of the stock of manufactured housing. You know, those types of idiosyncratic imbalances are what give us the extra comfort, if you will, to take the residual cap rate risk that you're taking in any real estate transaction. But there's a lot of anecdotes at the moment about uh, problem sourcing materials, including for manufacturing housing. How has that played into your strategy? You know, it, it has definitely been an issue. Uh, we had a hotel that was opening in Palm Springs. The opening was delayed probably five months. You know, for us, that's meaningful. It's five months of additional carry because we couldn't source things to finish out uh, the room renovations. You know, we're seeing it across lodging. We're seeing it in our assisted living, you know, portfolio. The amount of turnover is phenomenal. It's a knock-on effect of what's happening in the U.S. economy versus coronavirus. I think what you have to do is really carefully underwrite a few line items, probably more so than you might have otherwise, to ensure that margin you know, compression is not going to get you. 
one very important thing that, of course, we spend a lot of time on is, of course, also commercial real estate and office space. You and I are sitting here in uh, Manhattan, and um, as you know, uh, some of the indicators for uh, back to work uh, are still suggesting that uh, we are not even at 30% in term of normal in terms of uh, how many people get back to the office uh, after the pandemic. So how do you forecast um, what the trajectory is going forward for people returning to office spaces? And importantly also, uh, what is your expectation in terms of how businesses will look at uh, work from home and office space going forward? You know, I think that's a, it's a great question. When the uh, pandemic started, we took a look at some of the most dense markets in the United States, markets like Boston, New York, Chicago. And it was very interesting, you know, other than San Francisco, which had somewhat of an inversion. And let me explain what I mean by that. In the other markets, the price of the CBD real estate meaning the commercial business district. So let's take Midtown Manhattan, whether it was residential or office, versus the most comparable surrounding suburbs. So in this case, we utilized Westchester and Fairfield County. It was incredible. You know, the price per foot or the rent per foot differential, 70, 80%, meaning that if you took a baseline in city center New York, it was about 2,000 a foot for a condominium. It was about 70% of that in the corresponding suburb. And, and that would hold true for each of those markets within reason, with the exception of San Francisco, which had an inversion, meaning Atherton on a price per foot or rent per foot basis was actually more expensive than downtown CBD San Francisco. So very early on in the pandemic, our thesis was it's going to really accelerate the trend of movement to quality and cost of living advantage jurisdictions. So take the West Coast, that would look at Austin, Texas, Houston, Texas, Dallas, Texas, Denver, Colorado. If you take the East Coast, you could make a pretty compelling argument that Florida, whether it be the West Coast of Florida or more particularly Fort Lauderdale, Miami, and West Palm Beach, could easily become New York, Connecticut, New Jersey, Chicago, um, South. And you really saw that happening in very, very significant ways. Uh, one of the ways you saw it was the inverse by what was happening in New York rents. The irony is New York rents are starting to snap back, you know, very quickly. But as you suggested, Torsen, the utilization of office buildings really isn't yet. You can look at ours at 9 West 57th Street, which is probably a 10, 15 percent utilization would be my bet. No more than that. So I, I think personally that the demographic trends that had begun in the United States and that have accelerated under coronavirus are here to stay. You know, I personally feel very strongly about that. I think markets like Austin, Texas, Houston, Dallas, I think West Palm Beach, if you look at what Related has done in terms of buying up the office stock somewhat in Miami, Fort Lauderdale, and now West Palm Beach, I'll go on record and say that in 15, 20 years from now, I would argue that West Palm Beach is going to be almost a Wall Street South. So what would it take for you to buy a New York City office building today? What are the parameters that you're looking at? I, I think it would take courage. <laughs> I think it would take patience. And, and frankly, I know you have that. Yeah, I, I think it would take, um, you know, it's a great question. I, I really think it would take 
significant price reduction from where we are today and or an intergenerational view. You know, for our opportunistic style funds, I'm, I'm somewhat biased. I don't think that office is the best way to express investment themes because you tend to need duration. In seven years, five years is really not enough duration, in my opinion. You know, the amount of capital expenditures that go into an office building through TIs, leasing commissions, et cetera, in a short-term period can really overwhelm an investment thesis. And what is the duration, just for our listeners, it might be helpful to understand between the different types of uh, real estate that you invest in. I mean, when you buy an office building or a manufactured housing or some retail space, for how long time do you normally hold that asset? And how do you think about that investment from a, a, a timing perspective? Or are you flexible in terms of how long time you want to hold on to it? Or, or, or how, do you, how do you normally map out your thesis before you deploy capital? No, it's a, it's a great question. It, it very much depends on the investment theme. So for example, our net lease strategy will typically underwrite a 10-year horizon, albeit very comfortable owning the assets substantially longer. And maybe explain what a net lease strategy is. Sure. Net lease strategy, typically speaking, is a real estate asset that has a single tenant. Uh, the tenant may have investment grade credit rating. It may not. Um, so a good example would be a Walmart or a Lowe's, a single location that that tenant will have its operations in. And in order to utilize its capital most efficiently, it doesn't want to own the real estate. So it looks to someone like us and other landlords around the country who utilize their capital to own that real estate. And in return for that, they collect rent on an annual basis. And it's considered net lease because you simply collect a check and have no expenses as a landlord associated there too. And it's a, it's a very interesting business model. It's somewhat of a hybrid between real estate, as we think about it, as well as credit. Uh, because in many cases, the, the justification for the transaction is that the tenant has very good credit quality and is going to be in there for the duration of its lease and potentially extensions. And to the extent that that doesn't come to fruition, you essentially get an empty office building, an empty box in retail, and then ultimately have to reposition that asset with new tenant or a new utilization. And we, we call that kind of the residual loss uh, or the severity of loss. And in most of the types of transactions that we do and others do in net lease, it's a fairly substantial severity of loss to the extent that that tenant vacates ahead of its lease expiry. In the other types of stuff that we do more opportunistically, a traditional hold period would be somewhere around five, six, seven years, with the exception of a lot of what we do in Asia. We do the, what I refer to as credit solutions or structured credit, you know, investing higher up into the capital structure than the levered equity. In many of those transactions, they're shorter duration, somewhere between one and a half and three and a half years. And we do that because we try to somewhat insulate ourselves from the vicissitudes and the volatility of the markets there. And, um, you know, again, uh, coming back to the question you asked about what was happening in China, that's just the perfect example of why you don't want to have a lot of very levered equity, European style option investments in markets like China. Because if you're sitting at 85% levered and you had to refinance tomorrow, you'd be a little bit nervous. So our investing style changes around the globe 
based upon what I would call our risk mitigation and our structural mitigation thoughts. And, and one very important uh, dimension when you think about, in particular, a residential real estate is, of course, uh, household formation or demographics. And obviously, as you scan the globe for opportunities, uh, the demographics are quite different in many countries. You have a number of countries in, of course, Europe and, of course, also including in the U.S., where we have baby boomers retiring, uh, where the demographics will be changing over the next five to ten years. And given your uh, long horizon, your investment decisions, of course, several Asian countries see very, very strong population growth still. And of, of course, including also elsewhere in the world where demographics uh, and household formation can play a role. So how do you, um, when you put everything up on the scale and think about whether you want to invest in one opportunity relative to the other, how important is demographics and, and how do you think about that from an investment opportunity perspective? You know, I think it's, I think it's very important. The market that I will highlight is, is somewhere I lived for many years and invested in, which we currently don't in real estate, is Tokyo, Japan. You know, Tokyo is essentially a city-state alongside the greater Kinki region, which is Osaka. You know, you have a country with about 125 million people. You have GDP growth over the last 20-odd years and forecasted over the next six years, somewhere in the 1, 1.5% range. You have very, very, very little to no immigration, certainly commensurate with its population. And I can't say that investors haven't made money there. In fact, real estate investors have made a considerable amount of money over the 10 years. But what's fascinating about it is when you really look through as to how that money was made, to a large extent, it was made on what I would call infinitesimal cap rate compression slash very highly levered, financially engineered, structured transactions. I don't say that disparagingly. I don't say that pejoratively. It's a very legitimate way to invest. It so happens that it's not a tremendously Apollo way to invest. So as a result of that, we kind of shift to the countries where the demographic underpinnings are strong. You know, look at a dependency ratio, uh, Asia's is significantly better than Western Europe or the United States, where you see the flight to cities as a necessity uh, in terms of labor and pay. You see that in India. You see that in China. To a large extent, you also see that in markets like Australia. Australia is a great market that is another example, very small in terms of population, you know, roughly 24-odd million people which is about six times the size of New Zealand. But what you'll find is cities like Melbourne and Sydney are undergoing massive transformations through inward migration and immigration, disproportionate to their sizes. That in and of itself is a massive tailwind for real estate. You know, people in the United States may not otherwise know that or think that, but that has massive implications for our ability to invest in both credit and equity in Australia. So demographics, even getting down to the line item of affordability, in my opinion, is extraordinarily important. I think that most people, when they think of real estate, think about GDP growth, and they think that that's both necessary and sufficient. And I would argue that GDP growth is certainly a necessary ingredient. I don't think it's sufficient. You have to look at the demographics, the aging, the workforce, 
the flows of population and ultimately resulting in household formation, which is going to drive residential directly, but it's, all, it's also going to drive employment, which means office. Well, and in particular, given our conversation here has taken us uh, to a lot of different forces that are impacting real estate, uh, it, including, of course, demographics, uh, as we talked about inflation, uh, both on the cost side, uh, also inflation in terms of uh, the prices that uh, buildings are being sold for at the moment. Um, before we wrap up, um, let me try to then add it all together and ask you the question, given these different forces and factors, and including, of course, also the COVID recession that we are exiting here as we speak, uh, in your mind, what is the most compelling real estate opportunity that most investors aren't even aware of today? I would argue that right now, as it relates to real estate, the most mispriced risk, the most compelling, what I would call micro or niche investment that we see is in real estate structured credit in India. And let me briefly describe a transaction we did just to quantify what I mean by that. We recently did a transaction with a counterparty in India who was a non-bank financial company and they wanted to diversify, de-risk, and de-lever their portfolio. So we selected 26 loans that we separately refinanced and capitalized in Singapore. And without getting into the details, the, the, net, the net net effect of this transaction was for us to provide about $475 million of capital to sit from 0 to 37% loan-to-value against that collateral pool. When you work your way through the waterfall, meaning how the cash flows work once the repayments are made, we're going to earn roughly an 18% rate of return in rupee terms. We, we just got that transaction rated by Fitch at double B. When you look at the double B yield in India right now, it's roughly 8.3%. So we're talking about almost a thousand basis points of excess return. In my experience, that's a very, very unusual transaction to accomplish where we satisfied our desire to get compensated for the risk we were taking. But at the same time, the counterparty has done extraordinarily well as reflected in its publicly traded share price. It was a true win-win transaction. And I think that too many people view investors like us as vulture or capitalizing on other people's poor decisions or poor luck. And I would argue that in order to build an enduring, successful investing business, that's not the approach at all. You can clearly transact in a win-win solution, but yet achieve your objectives. And I think that to your question, that's the market right now where there's the biggest opportunity to do that. The next market, I would argue, and it's going to be somewhat controversial, is China. I think as a result of the headlines, many of our competitors will question and second question their existing portfolios in the country. They will likely stop investing there in the short to midterm. And much of the underlying dynamics that are at play, in my opinion, are going to be unaffected by what's happening. And we will be able to craft transactions that look an awfully eerily similar to what I just described in India. So that would be my 
kind of prospective next best transaction type we're going to generate. Wow, that's amazing. It just shows uh, how truly global your your investment activity is. If you both can look at uh, transactions such as that in India and also uh, manufactured housing in the US. Thanks so much, uh, Philip. Uh, that was a fascinating discussion. Uh, and with that, I'd like to wrap up today's conversation by thanking Philip Mintz and thanking our listeners for tuning in. Please be sure to subscribe to The View from Apollo so that you don't miss any upcoming episodes and take a listen to some of the earlier episodes. Thanks again for joining us today and thank you, Philip.